0: Hello, I'm Alex Mozad, you're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. I'm joined by Nick Johnson, co-author with me on the book, Modern Monopolies. We've got a packed agenda, a big couple weeks, this week, last week, and next week um, with earnings, which we're going to get to in a little bit. Uh, But first... If anyone's been traveling to LAX recently, it's in the Los Angeles airport. I feel bad for you. Um, I've been there in the past few months. Every time I've been there, it has been. They're deeming here Carmageddon. Um, the traffic was so bad to get a, to get an Uber. It took 30 or 40 minutes just for the Uber to get to my terminal. And then once the Uber gets to the terminal, I, I never actually ended up waiting. Then you would have to wait probably another 30 minutes just to get out. Uh, all the traffic of the airport because of all the traffic and yeah. so uh what was the lax's re- response well we're just gonna ban all uber and Lyft from being able to do um you know pick up at the curb wow uh at lax and then you get in a shuttle and you're supposed to go elsewhere but um so obviously this was a boon to the taxis because the because the way that airports a big lucrative area for them. Well, it's a big lucrative area. And so with LAX, did is they told Uber and Lyft in the app, you can't allow pickups, right? Right. So it's very easy to we'll enforce. find you and we'll impound your you drivers and all this stuff. Well, yeah, you don't need to enforce it because you just tell the company ban this area, which they've done historically. Right. So they know they have the capability to do that. So you turn it off in the app. Now you can't do it. Um, taxis you don't have that right so taxis are oh i drop someone off boom i'll just pick someone on up and i'm out of here right and so they can't police it for for the taxi. Well, taxis also have an official presence at the airport most airports like lax
1: does has a taxi stand and i'm sure that's there's some true I, I don't know if they banned that.
0: all pickup or not but net net it was pretty clear that taxis were going to be yeah, the
1: winner uh, laguardia and jfk did this in the past you used to have to take a shuttle get into Uber well, and LaGuardia Lyft. Well, LaGuardia still has it, yeah. La- LaGuardia has, a lot of them have separate areas now, which they they converted a parking lot or something into an Uber pickup area, but it used to be you had to take like a 10-minute shuttle to get to a totally different area. I think some, some of them it
0: still is. Maybe, I, I forget, I don't Might know. Might be some terminals. Yeah, but um, yes.
1: But yeah, it, it's not an uncommon challenge, and the the taxi companies are in tight with the airports, so. Yes, they are.
0: So, um, conveniently, Uber and Lyft were penalized. Ultimately, the consumer was penalized. The traveler was penalized. Taxis benefited. Um, I mean, what does this go to show? It just goes to show the strength and power uh, and value that companies like Uber and Lyft provide to travelers, how dependent they've become on the services, and still how government entities continue to underestimate them or poo-poo them or, you know, um, prioritize other people's interests uh, namely taxis um no, in, in this case it's uh local old
1: school monopolies versus modern monopolies yes, basically which exactly is interesting to see how that plays so out
0: they've apologized and said wow we really messed this up okay um and uh yeah so anyway good luck flying into lax um that's why this friend of mine bikes there but uh that's kind of difficult if you have luggage this was interesting MGM. Has now struck a deal with Yahoo, and Yahoo has pretty popular fantasy uh, apps, right? For fantasy football, and I guess fantasy basketball is a thing. I don't yep. and baseball. And baseball. Yeah. I mean, the kind of fantasy football in and of itself is so much work. I don't understand how you could also manage fantasy basketball. There's also hockey that I know Yahoo does. It's I mean, so it many all games. The, all the major
1: sports. Yahoo
0: has a big fantasy sports presence and right. have for a long time. So we've covered we've covered that sports betting has essentially been legalized cuz i guess a game of skill. Well Whatever. Fan, fantasy sports betting. Fantasy sports yeah. betting. Yes. It's a it's a skill game. And um which is hilarious, but anyway, um so now they have this tie up, Yahoo and MGM. I think that's a pretty good uh pretty good move on Yahoo's part and MGM's part. It's still linear yeah. though and we've spoken in the past that You could continue to see, you could continue to see, say, I don't know if ESPN would do this because it's a Disney property and they probably don't condone betting, but you could continue to see the other, you know, fantasy sites partner up um, with, say, a betting provider now that this has become legalized. But the winner take all dynamic in betting is the peer to peer dynamic, which is still newer. Um, It's still much more nascent, uh, but the economics are just there. The value is there from a product selection and an economic uh standpoint down to um down to the you know individual bettees. Um so it'll be interesting who capitalizes on I mean, that first.
1: Interesting area where I would hope to see this start to pop up is in esports, where the gambling market is a little less established and someone might try out some new stuff. There's a bunch of startups trying to tackle this. Uh I know for sure, but it would be interesting to see some of these bigger companies move into esports with more of this kind of peer-to-peer model. Uh, for gambling, as I think that's an area that mm. uh, you could have some innovation happening because it's a little less established than the big betting houses that you have mm. uh, for for traditional sports.
0: Oh so, yeah, that's something uh, to watch. That would be interesting. Yeah, who would you put your money on, Ninja, uh, or uh, who's the guy who just moved to Roud. Shroud? Yeah, um, be interesting. Uh, new Call of Duty is out, by the way. Um, so, Fiat Chrysler and PSA Pugot, Merge to create a fifty billion dollar automaker. This is roughly on size now with Ford, GM, and I think Tesla. Tesla's right around, yeah, right around. Tesla had a big beat in terms um, of market cap.
1: In terms of market, market share, yeah, uh, they're still Tesla's still well behind, but yeah, that's
0: true. I mean, I, you're just continuing to see consolidation. These automakers have not been able to figure out how to actually deliver digital uh, business models, right?
1: Um, of they, any significance they've been struggling with that they can see the value is shifting more toward software and these sort of digital components rather than just the hardware and the vehicle and their traditional model and in that world you don't want to be one of the kind of in-between small players uh, which both of these were, were relatively kind of mid-sized to small automakers on the scale of the industry so it makes sense if you know we you're caught in that kind of trap and see the change that's coming. You would want to combine and be able to be one of the more scale players.
0: What's interesting is that Hugo is the number two automaker in Europe. um, And Fiat Chrysler is obviously very strong in the U S Fiat Chrysler also owns things like Ferrari and, 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 you know, some luxury brands. Yeah. You know, there's been some stumbles in the industry, uh, but you see Ford and Volkswagen, uh, and their alliance where they're partnering up now on autonomous driving technology, I think electric vehicle technology as well. That was the impetus, or at least that's what the, uh, opinions are opinion pieces are on this deal that now they can combine, uh, that investment. Now the FCA, uh, is, is owned by one family. What family is that? It's the Elkin family. Um, the Elkin family owns a few other things, uh, like cnh industrial which is basically a big competitor to caterpillar um they own a number of other businesses uh in in that holding company as well but um yeah basically you're just you're seeing uh you're seeing the car industry is basically controlled by like five families yep. and um you know for for the fords uh, the toyotas now the elkins um gm Not so much. Yeah. Uh. Nissan, Renault. I don't think so. And Volkswagen, no. BMW, yes. And and I think Mercedes, no. So, what is that? Like sixty five percent of the car company, major car companies are uh, controlled by a family, which is very heavily controlled, if not entirely. Yeah. Yeah. Like Ford, the family, I think, has less than five percent actual. Um, say ownership in the company, right. but from a voting perspective, yes, they voting co- they shares have all the is votes. what matters when it controls. Yeah, yeah. so uh, yeah, it'll be very interesting, and um, see if these families. What these families need to do is understand that they're all in the same boat, uh, and that boat is taking on a lot of water, which they're understanding because they're merging together. But they need to all now collectively partner, or at least have at least a third or half of these players merge. They don't need to merge the company, but they need to merge their digital efforts to get right. enough critical mass to actually have uh, the ability to kind of get some network effects on the supply side, build a developer ecosystem as, we, as we've spoken about. Right. And the real um, threat here is,
1: is a Google or a company like that, maybe an Amazon coming in and uh, what Google is doing with Android Automotive. They got GM to join recently. I think also Vovo. Uh, and one or two others mm-hmm. uh, of the kind of midsize autos. And if they get enough market share, then the, the other auto companies are in trouble. And as you said, the way, only way they can really respond is they got to work together, having you know 12% market share here, 8% market share there, which a lot of these, even the biggest auto companies, if you look in their kind of major markets, not gonna be enough uh, nope. to compete with a Google or someone like that on a development
0: platform for the vehicle. Correct, correct. Uh, okay, so. Let's go to Amazon, our friend. Amazon is making two-hour grocery delivery free for all Prime members. This is a very big deal, A very very big deal. Yeah. Um, historically, so if you wanted to order uh, groceries basically from Amazon, it was, it was called Amazon Fresh. It still is Amazon Fresh, um, but the point is, it wasn't included in Prime. So you know, you pay 120 bucks a year, you get free two-day delivery. Not included you had uh, a separate membership fee or a separate delivery fee associated with that order. Um, now that's going away. It's going away in stages. They are kind of uh, prototyping this out with a select audience uh, of of people initially. But um, what they've been able to do, if you just think about this from an infrastructure standpoint, because where are these orders coming from? So if I'm ordering these fresh goods, They might be coming from a Whole Foods, for example. And so just the delivery and fulfillment mechanism of getting fresh goods from a grocery store to your home is very different than it coming from an Amazon fulfillment center where you have non-perishable goods that are now being sorted. And and those products could be coming from a variety of different places. And Amazon's fulfillment system is, is set up in a very centralized way, and they've obviously figured out how to deliver to to not just two-day shipping, but now one-day shipping um, on a huge chunk of of those non-perishable items. So now how do you blend this together and do it in an economical or, or at least somewhat economical sense? Obviously, this is still costing them. This is still new. They haven't rolled this out everywhere. Yeah. What, what this says
1: to me is that Amazon feels confident enough that more kind of autonomous... Uh, driving technology or drone type delivery is coming soon enough that they want to build the expectation and the user behavior. And then the unit economics are going to change over time. There's no way they're making money doing this over the next one to two years if they're offering this in select cities and then maybe eventually nationwide. I'm sure it might get adjusted by the time it gets that far. But this isn't meant to be a moneymaker in the short term. I think this is meant to capture market share and grocery, which is a huge play for Amazon And build the user behavior to expect this in a way that's going to be hard for their Amazon's rivals to match. And then eventually the technology and the unit economics are going to catch up to that. Or at least that's what I would expect the play is here.
0: Mm -hmm. And I mean, let's let's also put this in context. Two other data points. Uh, Walmart in the past, what, two months launched their similar Amazon Prime competitive program, but around grocery, focused right. on grocery. So you pay an annual membership fee, you're now gonna get free grocery delivery into, into your, your home. home. Yep. Um,
1: still a pilot program,
0: similar to this. Still a pilot program. Happening. Grocery is I think 40% of Walmart US's revenue. So yeah. it's massive. Grocery is clearly massive for Walmart. They're the
1: biggest grocery store in the US. Uh-huh.
0: And a long shot. And so obviously Amazon was probably feeling a little bit of heat there. I know that they have been this is this this program that they've been working on Amazon Fresh is something they've been working on for years, by the way. And it's gone through a few iterations. Yes. How do they yeah. how do they perfect delivery of fresh goods? Right. This was they've been working on this for a very long time. It's yeah. only, as you said, Nick it got into a, a point of maturity. It's not fully there. Clearly, it's still pilot, but it's gotten to enough of a point that they now want to, you know, do the PR uh, dance and and announce it and 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 make this more official. Um, I think the other thing is if you look at their quarterly earnings that they came out with, Amazon is valued like a growth stock. Here's their five day um price. And basically nothing bad has happened to their stock. If if we rewind the clock a few days, Amazon missed on earnings. So they lost. I mean, they didn't they, make as much profit as yes, they were expecting. They didn't make. make as much yeah. profit. But Amazon's valued as a growth company. Um, AWS was slowing in growth, but, um, clearly what Amazon is saying is we're investing in growth and I don't care as much about the earnings, Right, we're investing in one day shipping. They
1: were very upfront about that. That cost us money. And that's why our earnings came in lower
0: and, but it was good for growth. Yep. And so we're investing in revenue that. grew and, and this yep. is the same kind of mentality. Oh, and by the way, Wall Street doesn't care about our earnings that much either. Cause we had a big, pretty decent sized miss on earnings and our stock is pretty much fine.
1: Um, if, if I'm in Amazon shoes with the last you know few quarters or last year or so, as shown as if I'm Amazon, I can make a profit if I want to, and I've shown you and proved that to you. So now you're going to give me a little bit of leeway to go do more growth stuff, and I'm sure, uh, you know, Jeff and the team there has seen we're going to have to make these big investments in order to to continue to scale this in grocery and wanted to to get a little leeway with investors by proving hey we can take some profits. And, uh, you know, as that, cause they've done a lot of focus on profit taking initiatives over the last couple of years, you've seen a lot of moves to remove costs off the balance sheet, make monetize third party sellers more. And now they're shifting back more into growth mode and say, Hey, we've proved, we, we proved we can make money. Now we got to go get to the next step, which is, I think from their point of view, becoming a huge player in grocery, uh, and B2B and other areas like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'd say this is this is a win for Amazon, and uh, and and they're making good progress here. So um, let's go to Grubhub. There there is a lot of material on this Grubhub uh, situation. Um, if you do have the time to read through their, they, basically, what Grubhub did is they released a memo to shareholders in advance of their earnings call. Um, so they released it the evening before. And the reason they did this is because there's a very strategic shift in how the company is going to move forward. You can see here that basically the tank has stocked. I mean, the, the tank, stock has tanked. The stock has tanked. Um, it was about $60 a share. Now it's about $34 a sure. share. So why was that? What was the big news? So um, it's a very good read. and I, I And I do want to commend Matt. Uh, Maloney, the CEO and co-founder, um, in terms of how they're taking this on, we've talked a lot about on the show about Uber Eats, about Doordash, uh, their competition. their competition in food delivery. And um Grubhub is in Plat. They've been a dominant uh, delivery, food delivery platform for a long time. Couple points of context before we dig into this. Grubhub's historical traditional business model, has been two sided, not yeah. three sided. We've spoken about how Uber Eats is three sided, where you have the customer, you have the restaurant, and then you have the delivery, uh, you know, uh, right. driver, basically, or or or. or Originally, delivery Grubhub person. didn't have
1: the delivery people. It was just restaurants who had their own delivery people connecting with customers. Now they've started to add basically the delivery driver, third side of the network as a service to restaurants uh, who don't want to have their own delivery staff, which is how Uber Eats operates. Uh, which is how DoorDash operates. So their newer competition is doing this and they had to respond.
0: Exactly. Now, you know, one of the value props we talk about for um, for platforms is that you, you have the widest product catalog selection, right? Um, we're going to get to that on the next topic in terms of uh, linear e-commerce SKUs. But, right, you have the widest product catalog, especially for any kind of um, product or service marketplace, like a, like a food delivery platform. You want to have all the restaurants. I want to have all the availability that's out there. And now you're delivering me convenience, um, and all these kinds of things, right? In home delivery. So Grubhub was slower to, to make a three-sided marketplace and bring delivery, uh, in-house in the past, they would say, Hey, you're the restaurant, you figure out delivery and you figure out how to get the food to the customer, but we're bringing you the customer, right? um they have partner restaurants and so basically the partners are taking you know are basically paying grubhub a fee but the price that the customer sees for the food should be maybe not always but should be the same price that they see as if they were to go to the restaurant directly and order the food right so what does that mean that that means that the customer is not affected but that Grubhub is being paid by, you know, basically a take rate by the restaurant. And, and the restaurant's figuring out fulfillment on their own. Okay. Interesting. All of that comes to the point where Grubhub has a smaller product catalog than these aggressor uh, delivery platforms like an Uber Eats. They don't reference Uber Eats, but they basically call out Uber Eats uh, multiple times. That's because if I'm a restaurant that doesn't have my own
1: delivery service or my own delivery people in the past, I couldn't list on Grubhub. uh, But now these basically Uber Eats said doesn't matter what you have, if you're McDonald's even, who doesn't have their own delivery service or hadn't for a very long time. Whatever it is, we'll take you on if we think your food's a good fit and we want to sell you to our customers. And they'll they'll handle the delivery because obviously if I'm Uber, I have all the drivers already.
0: So basically what you're seeing is, and what they describe uh, in this memo, is uh, massive new entrance spending to acquire growth at all costs and do it in an unprofitable way. Uh, Grubhub is profitable. Um, And so... Grubhub has continued to try to um, grow and they have had double digit growth. But what they're saying is that we need to change our strategy um, and address this. And so there's a f- number of key points in here, but I really want to drill in on this one. So I'll just read this out. Um We know from experience the single biggest determinant of of diners' usage on marketplaces is whether it has the restaurants that the diner wants. Makes sense. Historically, we have chosen to only list partnered restaurants on Grubhub. We still firmly believe this is the right way to build the marketplace and is the only way to drive long-term value for all the participants. Okay, here's the money or or, or the the lighting Mm -hmm. money on fire part. But it also takes longer to build the network this way. Partnering takes a lot of work. Others... Uber Eats and, you know, delivery, DoorDash and all these places. Um, Others have chosen to list non-partnered restaurants on their marketplaces and have generated strong diner and order growth despite high diner pricing and challenging economics. Right now, our existing and new potential diners find more restaurants on other platforms. We need to eliminate this difference and speed is paramount. Okay, this means... (laughs) <laughs> we've got to change course and we've got to do it fast. Um, this is really the crux of it. A few supporting notes on this, which I thought were really interesting. I listened to their quarterly earnings call. It was this week. I think it was uh Tuesday morning. Yeah, Tuesday morning. Um, and so they spoke a lot about looking at cohorts. And uh, as a refresher for folks that don't know what a cohort, basically what you do is you look at a segment of your audience or your customer base. And so they are divvying up cohorts and saying, let me look at uh, my new diners, right? New customers that I've attracted in. And they have historical data to say, okay, you know, two years ago, three years ago, a year ago, what was the behavior of new diners that joined my platform? And they have some kind of CAC associated with that cost of customer acquisition. And the key thing for any business is what is my CAC to LTV ratio? LTV is lifetime value. So what you want to look at is say, okay, I spent X to acquire this customer. Okay. How much did this customer continue to use my product? Did that did that usage increase or decrease over time? What is each customer, average customer worth to me? And how, how long does it take me to make back that acquisition? How cost long does it take well? me to break even? How long yep. profit? And all of that basically means th- the ideal thing you want to look for is a three to one CAC to LTV ratio. Basically that you can make three, three. times yeah. uh, the amount. Your LTV is at least three times high, high as high as what it costs for you to acquire that customer.
1: And typically you want to look at uh, VC economics. They would look for you want to make that back in six months. So you want to get one to one within six months and ultimately reach uh, you know, a three to one ratio for that customer. So the sooner the better.
0: So Grubhub looks at this data very closely. And so they're looking at these and they're saying, oh, well, um, in August, they said, okay, so this is what's really interesting. It is now October. And in August, they said it really started to change for them. It was the tipping point when they were doing these cohort analyses. And they said, we looked at the new diners that we would get. And they started to, basically what they said is they started to order. They would order with Grubhub. And then they would order with other platforms. And so there is much lower diner loyalty in the sense that they would use Grubhub interchangeably with other places. Right. What really mattered was could I order from specific restaurants um, that, that, that people wanted to order from? This is a big problem. Um Grubhub has spoken now that this has also started to seep into their existing customer cohorts. So they're seeing now not just in the new diner cohort, but now existing. Analyses existing customers that this is starting to creep into that. I, I, I can definitely speak to that personally. I you
1: know, used to uh, traveling a lot, busy, used to order on Grubhub frequently. And then Uber Eats is basically, and DoorDash to a lesser extent, have basically overtaken that. And uh, unless there's a specific place I want and the others don't have it, I don't order as much from Grubhub anymore. And I used to be you know, a loyal Grubhub customer. And that, that ability to go elsewhere is just because they have more inventory. It's, that's the short version. That network effect there is stronger
0: exactly. So, um, what this means is that Grubhub is going to invest heavily in acquiring more salespeople, um, so that they can try to both get restaurants to be a a partner restaurant with them, but now to also go and sign up non-partner restaurants. So what that means is basically you're going to, if I'm Grubhub, I'm going to make much less money on every order going to a non-partner restaurant. But what they're saying is I need to just retain my customers. Right. And right inventory. now they're, Yeah, I'm getting leakage. Even if I'm not leaving. making
1: money on all of the orders, at least I'll make money on some of them. And yep. if I don't, rather than losing them basically, and then not coming back and then I don't make any money.
0: And then the next point here talks about diner loyalty, uh, diner loyalty um, and all these kinds of things, right? But um, so the, I'll jump down right here, right? So For restaurant inventory, we will rapidly expand our recent pilots of putting non-partnered restaurants on the platform. For reasons we've discussed many times, we believe non-partnered options are the wrong long-term answer for diners, restaurants, and shareholders. It is expensive for everyone, a suboptimal diner experience, and rife with operational challenges. With that said, it is extremely efficient and cheap to add non-partnered inventory to our platform, and it can at least ensure that all of our current and potential new diners have the option to order from any of their favorite restaurants now. Even if it's the not, even if it's not the best solution.
1: Right. Basically they have to go scrape a bunch of menus from websites and then you can just
0: put it on their platform and say, Hey, we'll send you orders. So by leveraging non-partnered options, we believe we can more than double the number of restaurants on our platform Hmm. in a year, basically by the end of 2020. Pretty big difference, which is a massive growth when you yeah. think about it, and when you think about their They've existing been around for diner a, presence,
1: you know, decade plus. And to
0: say that hey, we can double our restaurants in a year is a pretty big change. Um, exactly. So, um, basically, this means their margins are getting rocked. Uh, they're investing heavily in bringing on more headcount. They're now uh catering and and their core transactions. So the the money they make per order, which is a huge KPI that they track gets nuked because now that goes way down on the transactions for non-partner restaurants. Um, But they need growth or they need to retain these customers. They need to be able to continue to grow and they need to be able to retain their existing customer base. This is a great example of platform wars. I think this is a great example of um, when platforms battle, the users win, both consumers and producers. Non-partner restaurants are winning from this too because now I can get demand from Grubhub and I don't have to pay them fees or I don't have right. to pay them the same least in the short term. level of yeah. fees and lock-in. Um Grubhub goes on to talk about Level Up. They bought Level Up, uh, which is a point of sale platform. And, and so what's interesting to me is that Caviar was just ripped out from underneath Square, which had a bundled the, point the Square sale, point of sale yep. and Caviar bundling. Right. They sold it to DoorDash for 400 million yep. roughly. Um I think, Square saw that this was going to, that this fight was just going to continue to heat up yep. and they could make some money. I think they bought caviar for about hundred million dollars. So they forexed their investment. Yep. You've seen some consolidation, I think in Europe as well, where
1: you have similar kind of battles going on. I wouldn't be surprised to see even more consolidation
0: uh, continuing to happen in the U S now the key is to get this partner uh, inventory. So outside of just having so- outsized demand, and 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 that is the mechanism that you use to get restaurants to partner up with you and basically pay you more fees, right? Um, how else do you do that? And I and I think that's where this level up thing gets kind of interesting. Yep. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I it it really depends on how aggressive Dara at Uber uh, wants to be, or potentially DoorDash as well. I mean, this would be interesting. Between is Dara really feeling the heat from investors? How much is he feeling heat from investors? How aggressive does he want to be? To turn a profit. To turn a profit. Yeah. Because if, if I was Dara or if, or if I'm DoorDash, this point of sale thing I think is very interesting to me. Um, would I go buy Toast, for example? Another big point of sale startup. Big point of, sales, point of sale startup. I think it's a unicorn. I think they've probably raised like four or $500 million. But there's a few of these big... Um, up-and-coming point-of-sale systems that have heavy penetration with who? Restaurants. Um, and what are these sticky linear services right. that you can layer into your solution to try to just further embed yourself with the supply? Because clearly hard- the makes supply- Makes it
1: harder to, to leave the platform, makes it harder to switch if, oh, I'm going to lose all this other stuff too. And maybe I pay for some of it, but it all works together and you know makes the experience or- difficulties of running a restaurant of which there are myriad uh much easier if i could all kind of works together in one place so there's definitely some synergies there
0: so what's one takeaway from this supply really is king yep and nick's mic cut out when we were talking about this we were talking about our friend (laughs) he is a friend i respect him a lot for a lot of what he writes about but one point that he got wrong maybe a couple weeks ago ben thompson ben thompson what what was his was he talking about talking about
1: uh, I think in the context, maybe it was Uber or something like that, and said supply doesn't matter; it's all about you know aggregating demand,
0: basically. Mm. Oh, um, it was Uber. He's talking about just aggregating demand and supply doesn't matter, something oh, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was about the the driver stuff. Well, here is a great scenario, and we were and and we were talking. You couldn't hear Nick's side of it though, but we were basically talking about how um, supply is absolutely paramount for platforms, um, Netflix, which. He uh, recognized as an aggregator. We do not recognize as a platform. We think Netflix is going to have a hard time because it doesn't have a supply side network effect because right. it's, it's linear.
1: It owns licenses linear. and creates all its own content. There's no third party creator uh, that it's right. connecting with. It's customers. not
0: as defensible. It doesn't have a moat. It doesn't have a network effect. It doesn't have a winner take all. Right. It's moat is
1: basically how much it's going to spend on content this year yes. and next year. Which as so we on. are
0: seeing, at and just got for $500 million, South Park, by the way. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's, you can, how much money, how much dry powder do you have? How much are you going to spend? This is how do you capture it? Right. So I can spend money, but how do I get these restaurants a, and so these are basically hacks. These non-partner restaurants are basically a hack to get access to supply. But now how do I get those restaurants to work more closely with me? And that is, yes, you can spend money, but now how can you make that a sticky value prop where they are now working with you and a and a producer a more closely aligned producer on the platform so this will be very interesting to see how this pans out um grubhub got a huge haircut i don't know if the haircut was this justified they did not provide 2020 guidance which i think really freaked out Mm -hmm. uh their investors rightly so but basically grubhub is going to war Right. Our unit economics are going to suck basically on at least half of our orders
1: if we're adding 50, you know, another doubling our number of restaurants. Unit economics will be terrible. Well, we have to do this to grow because if we don't have the supply, going back to the conversation we had where the the mic cut out on uh, Ben Thompson's article. uh, If you don't have the supply, you lose that network effect. The only time supply doesn't matter if you basically have a monopoly and there's no effective competition. And then it's really about I have the demand. Where else are you going to go? But when you have these platforms competing against each other, uh, where they usually compete is on the supply side, at least as much as on the demand side. And you're seeing that here with Grubhub where they've lost out because they've gotten uh, left behind on the supply side
0: in a big way. Yeah, it's interesting. I There's going to be more consolidation because you have DoorDash, yep. which bought Caviar, right? Yes. You have Postmates, which is trying to go IPO. Or, I, or get acquired or something to that effect. Now you have Grubhub and you have Uber Eats. Right. There's definitely not room for four. Um, so I think if, if Grubhub can show that they can fight back and put a dent, it gives them much more leverage to look at then merging or acquiring a Postmates or something a, a like Postmates. that. Postmates. Postmates is much smaller than a DoorDash. Yeah. Uh, I think DoorDash probably has a higher valuation than Grubhub. Yes. Interestingly enough. So. Um, but so Grubhub is now coming from behind, essentially, at least on the two major players. Right. Um, we've already spoken about how I think you know Uber Eats uh, dwarfs, not dwarfs, but definitely has more GMV than DoorDash and Grubhub um, in, uh, in food delivery. So Uber Eats is, again, I, we are seeing platform conglomerate versus platform-specific businesses. And we've said before in the past, we're bullish on Uber overall, long term. Uber's earnings come out on Monday, um, and I think we are seeing this. Those advantages really play into, um, and and Grubhub mentions it in this letter that a national competitor with a national fulfillment capability came into the space and basically rocked our world. Who could that be? Mm, exactly. So, okay. Um, Where did this article? Okay, Granger. Uh, this is this is one of the most well-known B two B distributors, um, and 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 what they're doing to stand up to an Amazon. And they've invested a lot in e commerce. We've spoken about this is in B two B distribution now, folks. Um, and basically, in this article, the one thing I'll just point out here is that they talk about uh, expanding the number of SKUs. So we're just on the topic of SKUs with Grubhub. Now we're going back to this. So they said. In the third quarter, we added about 350,000 SKUs, which brings us to 800,000 SKUs. Um, go, I, this is another, another uh, Wolf of Wall Street reference. Those are rookie numbers. You got to pump those numbers up. Um, this is industrial supplies, folks. This is like markers and safety supplies, pa- safety and supplies, goggles. and like paper supplies, and goggles. Right. I mean, there is some equipment. There are certainly some larger purchases and some more. Right. MRO
1: does have uh, you know, some actual more kind of heavy industrial stuff to it, but yes. this is a ton of pack and ship stuff. Uh, you know, basic supplies, basically, that a lot of their you know, manufacturing customers and a lot of others use. And uh, yeah, there's not, it's not a lot of SKUs that, that they're touting. And I think that our point of view, obviously, is Marketplace would get a lot more a lot quicker.
0: Right. So their goal is to add 10 million items over the next three to five years. I mean, that's kind of a long time. <laughs> I
1: right. guarantee
0: Amazon business has millions of SKUs right now in just industrial supplies. Yeah, um, And uh, this needs to be much faster. And I think our point here is that if you were to embrace a marketplace with third-party sellers, you would get there much faster right you could like talk about getting magnitude
1: faster you could talk about getting 10 million skews in 12 to 18 months yeah i would say three in to five two years, years
0: get 10 million skews right which is more than 10xing the skews that you have in two years yep. and that should be the goal um you know what is it the big hairy audacious goal that should be the goal uh but i don't know you know we'll, we'll see um etsy etsy okay Etsy's getting rocked. I don't really know. It's not too clear why. Um, they actually hit their uh, earnings expectations. They actually hit the earnings earnings per share right on the head. Um, they revised some of the, the guidance, but they actually didn't revise their growth <laughs> guidance down. So, again, you would think if... Or, Etsy stock is down by over 13% right now. And they didn't necessarily have um, a bad earnings release. So it's kind of curious. Uh, It looks like they're going to have around $5 billion for full year GMV. They call it gross merchandise sales. They don't really call it GMV, but this is the same thing as GMV. Um, They had good growth. uh, And they have introduced things like shipping on orders of $35 or more. Um, you would expect that to hurt their earnings. I, I actually think it hurt their earnings less than I thought it was going to hurt their earnings. Um, as we've seen with say, an Amazon rolling out next day shipping, right? So you kind of see that really hurt the bottom line. It actually didn't, it didn't hurt it as much as I think it could have. Um, they did re- reduce a little bit of their earnings guidance forward looking, mm. but um but again, these companies don't get destroyed. You don't lose 13-15% of your stock price over slightly decreasing your earnings guidance in the future. It's on growth, and they had strong growth. Um I think, you know, the the theory here is that or, or I guess um the short sellers are trying to unload a lot uh on Etsy. And I think what Etsy is saying is that we need to that, you know, that they need to invest or they need to do, they need to invest in shipping and a lot of these things to stay competitive. Um, But uh, they're really, maybe Wall Street wants to see uh, companies be, I don't know, more profitable or something sooner with the whole, we work debacle and all these kinds of things. But, I think this is a unwarranted level of sell-off on Etsy. Um, kind of given their guidance, given their uh priorities, their trajectory. Um, I, I actually am much more bullish um uh than clearly what the stock market uh is doing to their stock price right now. So maybe that's an opportunity. Maybe not. But um I actually think they've done a pretty good job so far. So um On the other hand, LendingTree is way up. Uh, Etsy or Etsy is like fifteen percent down. LendingTree is thirteen percent up, and um, they revised their their earnings and their guidance up on both growth and uh, profit and and EBITDA. Um, I think they're just attributing this to uh, just strong performance, strong demand, um, good execution. But and they have a a, a very good outlook, so uh, I think that's very interesting. Maybe the uh, you think the Fed cutting interest rates is 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 a boon for them? You think that's helping them? Uh, just
1: I'm sure a healthy economy definitely helps them. I think the interesting thing uh, that I see here is as you know, a lot of companies are hesitant looking at lending marketplace and that kind of stuff because they're worried about you know, the. Future economic performance that we're going to see over the next couple of years with kind of recession potentially looming on the horizon. A lot of people are worried to see lending tree basically buck that trend and say, Hey, we're a lending marketplace. We're still going strong, and our guidance is going to get even better uh, is an interesting proof point that this model is still working and working pretty well. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So, um, and what just happened is Pinterest just released earnings. Pinterest is also way down uh 18% down right now and um basically they missed on revenue and uh <clears throat> um but they still had strong growth they are losing money um but uh i think this one is definitely one of those ones that is more uh we are losing money vulnerable I think this is probably more of a symptom of just how investors are feeling right now about investing in companies that aren't profitable. Right. And I think
1: content, I mean, we've seen this with Snap. We've seen this with a number of the Chinese content platforms. If you're building an advertising business, basically a content platform or a platform that only monetizes an advertising, it's a much weaker monetization scheme than being able to take some kind of a take rate or direct cut of the value being exchanged. And it's much harder to get to profitability, you know, even Facebook took a number of years. Google took a number of years to get there. Uh, so I think a lot of these content platforms struggle for a long time. We've seen Twitter deal with this too. Uh, and Pinterest is still very early on and I expect they've still got some more speed bumps to go through before they get close to uh, profitability if they do.
0: Yeah. I mean the interesting thing for, t- so, so Pinterest is doing, um, full year revenue they estimate at 1.1 to 1.115 uh, which is basically one, uh, one, 1 100 million to 1 billion i mean yeah uh 50. 100 1, 115 million jeez um and uh, so analysts were expecting sales of 1120000000 so it's it's like oh we re, we revised it down by five to ten million dollars, but they um, revised they they narrowed the guidance on their loss, which was previously a range of twenty five to fifty million loss for that same period of time to ten to thirty million loss. So they shrunk the loss more than they shrunk the revenue. But again, mm-hmm. a Wall Street wants to see growth. B Wall Street is very uh, nervous about these companies that don't make money that said this amount of money it's basically nothing what is this like 0.1% of revenue um it's not bad they're getting close I really don't or no it's it's 1 to 3% of revenue a 10 to 30 million dollar loss on it right. on a billion roughly a billion dollars in revenue it's really not that bad I, this also seems like an overreaction to me um Pinterest is up net net thirty percent on the since they IPO'd prior to the eighteen percent drop. So the stock is still probably up around ten to twelve percent since they IPO'd as a result of this. But um, I don't know. Just it, the, these the Pinterest and Etsy seem like pretty drastic slides um, for I think earnings announcements that. Uh, were not as drastic as as the reaction from from Wall Street is, so um, take that for what you think it's worth. But thank you for joining us today on Winner Take All. Uh, we will talk to you tomorrow. We have a guest um, a guest joining us tomorrow morning, and so we will uh, we will talk to you then about uh, a, a new initiative from uh, I think Uber and Lyft have partnered up on this, as well as one other company which I'm forgetting right now, to counteract California's law about classifying their 1099 workers as w2 employees so uh, we'll dig into that tomorrow morning thanks for joining us